Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And we'll look together at the King of Kings and his cast of killers. King of Kings and his cast of killers. Let me read this text for us just to put it in our memories so that we can walk through it more slowly. Verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off and put on his own garments and they led him out to crucify him. 
One of the most common descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament is King of Kings. He's called the King of Kings several times. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes in verse 15, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. In the book of Revelation, John writes in chapter 17, verse 14, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is the Lord of lords, and He is the King of kings. Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, I saw open heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he had a name written on him which no one has known except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So how would the people respond to the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the Jews? if he were to stand right before them. The passage before us gives us that answer. And it's not good. Being the king of kings assumes that he is indeed not only the king of all kings, but he's the king of the Jews, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And when he came, he met those he came to redeem Instead of a welcome that should have extended from the first of the week when he entered Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, it becomes a catastrophe and catastrophic. The reception is horrific. Mark records this tragic reception in these first 20 verses. The king is met by his subjects. And as this tragic event unfolds, we have to remember that as Horrible and horrific and tragic as these details are, they're not an accident. Fast forward just a few months, Peter is going to preach the first Christian sermon ever preached. It falls to Peter to do it. And in Acts chapter 2, he says, in the middle of this first Christian sermon, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know yourselves. This man delivered over, that's what we're about to watch today, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him be held in his power. 
This is such an amazing perspective that we see after the cross that you and I have perspective to maintain as we go through the narrative leading up to and including the cross. Oh, Jesus was handed over by these godless men, put to death, nailed to a cross by their own human hands, but all of it done according to the predetermined plan of the Father. In the next three weeks, this week and the next two, we are going to listen to Mark describe the details which Peter alludes to in this sermon. We find ourselves in the Roman part of Jesus' trial. Now, if you want to get an excellent book, I've recommended it to you many times, Robert Thomas's book, Thomas and Gundry's Harmony of the Gospels. It helps you navigate these events. Let me say from the beginning that we're going to preach Mark's account of these events and add some color from the other gospel writers, but I'm not going to attempt to preach the event of this trial. That would take actually several weeks because there are a lot of details that that have a confluence in them, but we're going to follow Mark's lead and let Mark sing his song in this passage. But just backing up from this passage a little bit, there are two parts of Jesus' trial. The first is the Jewish, the second was the Roman. The first we've already seen. He has taken, Mark doesn't tell us this, but he's taken first to um, the former high priest Annas, who was the godfather of the high priest. Remember, there was a high priest who served every year. His son-in-law Caiaphas was serving this year. He's taken first to Annas' house to pronounce him guilty. They thought it was a slam dunk. Annas could find nothing wrong. So he sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. We looked at that in our last study. Caiaphas could find nothing wrong, innocent. The worst thing they could come up with is that he had blasphemed God by saying he was God's son. They also began making up a concocted narrative that he was an insurrectionist and a, uh, a reverse zealot taken up Rome's side and was going to crash and destroy the temple when he said, this temple will be destroyed and I'll build it back up in three days, he was speaking of his body, they used his words out of context to say he was actually against the temple. Well, they threw these charges together and they declared him guilty and they beat him up. They roughed him up pretty bad. By the time he comes to Pilate, he was probably a bloody mess. Eyes swollen together, nose bleeding, lips puffed, But this Roman trial they needed because the Jews did not have the power of capital punishment. They needed the Romans to pronounce something against Jesus so that he could be executed. Well, that also involved two people, but three parts. Mark conflates all this, and and he doesn't even mention one part of it. He meets with, John gives us the most color on this. Jesus meets with Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. He actually gets afraid. He's, uh, uh, he has, his wife tells him, don't have anything to do with this man. He bumps him over to Herod, who was his boss. Herod and Pilate were both in the, in the Jerusalem area that week because it was Passover week. I'll talk about that in a moment. Herod can't find anything wrong with him. So he bumps him back to Pilate. So these two visits with Pilate... Mark takes and puts them together for brevity so that we can see the results. His fate was sealed both by human hatred and envy and in concert with God's predetermined plan. 
Now, as we've done throughout Mark, we're going to follow his narrative and not try to preach the whole event and harmonize all of the four Gospels. Mark, by the way, refers to Jesus six times in this chapter as king. Six times. It's the first time he's referred to Jesus as the king and the king of the Jews, and six times he does so in the space of a few verses. Anytime we see that happening by the Holy Spirit, we ought to take notice, and we will do that together because this whole thing is about Jesus' kingship. In fact, we're going to follow along and look at four deteriorating, degenerating rather, evaluations about the king of kings. Four degenerating. It starts with a great pronouncement and then starts degenerating and gets worse from there. Four degenerating evaluations about the king of kings. The first is in verses 1 to 5. The king confirmed through Pilate. This is going to surprise you. And it certainly would have been a surprise to the Bible readers who read it during this generation. The king is confirmed through Pilate. Verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priest, stop right there, early in the morning. How do we know it's early in the morning? Because Peter just denied Jesus when? As that rooster was crowing, and that indicates sunrise. They had conducted an illegal uh, trial overnight. It was overnight. It was during a festival. Everything that could be wrong with this trial was wrong according to the law and according to the Talmud. Early in the morning, they'd been up all night trying Jesus before Annas and before Caiaphas. They've beaten him to a pulp. They've slapped him. They've spit on him. They've kicked him. They put a bag over his head and said, prophesy, who is the one punching you? Just after that, early in the morning, these people, the chief priests, the elders, scribes, the whole council, the cast of killers, immediately got together and held a consultation. This is significant because all these groups couldn't stand each other. And yet, they found a common enemy in Jesus, and then they're all consulting with each other. They're friends. We've seen all these groups in the last few weeks. The chief priests were those, those who would share the rotation of the, the high priest. They were the, the people who were most respected, most decorated, the, the longest robes, the longest tassels. Then the elders, those were the representatives of the 12 tribes who would have all convened during the week of Passover. The scribes, those were the theologians, the lawyers, and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin. The 70 plus representatives of all these groups that were the final authority. They all held this consultation. This is like the Democrats, the Independents, and the Republicans all getting together and saying, we got something we disagree, we, we finally agree on. And it's disagreeing with Jesus. They found Jesus guilty of claiming to be the Messiah and worse, claiming to be the Son of God, which was tantamount to blasphemy in their minds because in that he claimed to be God. Claimed to have a divine nature. But there was a problem. They found him guilty, theologically, But theological guilt did not warrant the death penalty underneath Roman rule. 
They didn't care about the theology of Jesus or the Sanhedrin. Now you have a strange second consultation that's about to happen. And second, friends, all of these groups together fundamentally despised and hated Rome and Roman rule. Ever heard of the zealots? These groups would hire zealots to go and have guerrilla warfare and commit terrorist acts against Rome. They couldn't stand being under the yoke of Rome. They looked at salvation primarily as being delivered from Rome. But they're about to try to find an ally in the Roman governor. Enter Pontius Pilate. After the illegal Jewish trial, they led Jesus to the northwest corner of Jerusalem to a complex known as the Antonio Fortress. Here, the Jewish leadership submitted to him, submitted Jesus, rather, to Pilate for prosecution. Pilate was the Roman governor of Palestine. His home was actually up in Caesarea Mamertine. It was up on the coast, a beautiful place where Paul spent three years in prison before he was taken over to Rome after he appealed to have his case heard in Rome. But he came down to Jerusalem during this week, the same as Herod did, because it was the Passover. This was the festival. There were millions of Jews from all over Israel who convened on Jerusalem. So he comes the 75 miles from the northwest down to Jerusalem. Why? To flex his muscle, to show everybody he was the one in charge, and secondly, to make sure that there were no more insurrections by the zealots. Riots. John 18.31, by the way, tells us that the Sanhedrin did not have jurisdiction over capital punishment, so Pilate was a necessary player for securing Jesus' execution. Verse 2, and we will move faster. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, the phrasing of this question is very important in the original language. The Greek is far more interesting and explicit here because there's no question asked. It's actually the same Greek construction as the high priest's question in chapter 14, verse 61. It's an imperative with an interrogative meaning. Said another way, it's a statement that functions like a question. Remember when Goliath said to David, you are going to fight me with a sling? That was not a statement. That was a question. What do you think you're doing? Are you really going to do that? Pilate's statement literally is this. You are the king of the Jews? You see how you can make a statement and even inflection make it a question? You're the king of the Jews? He's looking at this bloody mass of humanity. He says, you're the king of the Jews? It was a statement. Out of the mouth of a pagan is the statement, you are the king of the Jews. Every husband knows what it's like to have a statement that really functions as a question. You gonna, you're you're going to wear that? 
That, that's not a question. That's a statement. That's not a statement. That's a question. That's exactly what's happening here. You are the king of the Jews. It's an, uh, an indicative. Out of the Lord's enemies mouth comes his true identity. Now, why would he ask this question? Remember, the charges against Jesus were the threats against temple, the temple, and blasphemy and being the king, the Messiah, back in chapter 14, verse 57 and 64. Pilate, again, has no interest in, in, in discerning or deciding religious and theological problems between these Jewish leaders. However, they were smart, clever, genius. They knew if they brought the charge that he was claiming to be a king, that would get the attention of Pilate. They were right. It was a threat to his leadership. He says he's the king of the Jews. Luke helps us understand how manipulative they were being. These Jewish leaders pull Pilate into their plot by forcing him to see Jesus as a political rival. Luke chapter 23, verse 2. This man subverts our nation, they said, opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and claims to be Christ a king. They don't add king of the Jews there. Just he's the king. And again, this is the first of six times Mark is going to call Jesus the king of the Jews or refer to someone calling Jesus king of the Jews in this chapter. That's verse 2, 9, 12, 18, 26, and 32. Whenever you see a biblical writer repeating something so often in such a short, spa short space, you can be sure the Holy Spirit is saying, pay attention. Mark is accenting the fact that Jesus died as the king of the Jews. The Jewish leadership catch Pilate up in their murderous plot with charges that Jesus was claiming to be king over Caesar and even over Pilate. Now, as astonishing as the way Pilate uses his statement as a question is the way Jesus uses his answer as no answer. And he answered, the English says, it is as you say. The Greek is literally, you say so. You're the king of the Jews, Jesus says, you say so. You say, why is that important? It's divine genius. If Jesus would have said, yes, I am, as our New American Standard says, he would have been immediately arrested, put on a cross. But if he had denied it, he would have been denying his true identity. So he allows Pilate's words to stand. Pilate, you're the king of the Jews, Jesus, you say so. Which is the same thing as saying it is as you say. He didn't deny it, but was clever enough not to give the confession prematurely that the Jews were hoping for. 
This gets the chief priests pretty angry. Look at verse 3. They begin to accuse him harshly. They see that Jesus has caught Pilate, that he hasn't answered as accurately as, as they would have liked him to, so they begin adding harsh accusation after harsh accusation. The word harsh literally means angry and loud. They can't hold themselves back. They jump in. It becomes a riotous, raucous mob mentality. Verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again. Do you not answer? Obviously, Pilate, Pilate didn't understand Jesus' answer as an answer, did he? You didn't answer me. You just said, I said what I said. And then he talks about what's going on in the, in the room. I mean, they're firing charges and accusations off at the Lord. See how many charges they bring against you? Listen to this. But Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was shocked. He was amazed. He is watching this in utter disbelief at the courage, the integrity, the wit and cleverness of Jesus of Nazareth. John writes that Jesus and Pilate had a conversation then about Political authority I'll refer to in a moment who was really in charge of this world, but Mark doesn't go into that detail. So between Pilate's interrogation and the Jews' accusation, Jesus provides no defense of himself. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Peter says later, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile back. Suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what we see happening right here. Jesus refuses to give a defense, and Pilate is shocked. He's amazed. Mark will also let us know that not only is Pilate amazed here, he will be amazed by his death in verse 44. But be careful. Being amazed by Jesus doesn't mean having faith in Jesus. And we have no evidence that he ever believed. Isn't it amazing that the king is confirmed through the lips of Pontius Pilate? A second degenerating, and this is where it starts spiraling out of control, degenerating evaluation Degenerating evaluation about the King of Kings is in verses 6 to 11. Jesus is superseded by chief priests. Jesus superseded the king, superseded by the chief priests. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to, he being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. I would love to tell you more about this, but we have no extra biblical um, insight about this and the the gospel writers just say that it happened. It was an amnesty given to a prisoner. That's all we know. It was a habit. Pilate had done it, obviously, in years past, and they were expecting the same to happen here. Also know that it's the crowd who would request this amnesty. 
his pardon. Verse 7, the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rioters, the insurrectionists who had committed murder in, this is an interesting Greek designation, the insurrection. He speaks of a specific riot, but, but we don't have record of that. We don't know what it was. We do know that zealots were rioting all the time, though. We do know that he had committed murder. Matthew and Luke tells us he was also a robber. This was no man of character. He was no hero. Most of the people looked at the zealots as those who ended up causing them trouble, not their heroes. The zealots would rebel, and then Rome would be even harsher with higher taxes. They didn't like these guys, and they certainly didn't like Barabbas. Pilate, no doubt, thought that given the choice between freeing a murderer and freeing the miracle worker from Galilee, the people would choose the latter. But he was about to be proven wrong. The crowd, verse 8, went up. (laughs) Interesting designation. Pilate would have been standing at the top of the steps of the Antonio Fortress, pontificating from there, Jesus standing on those steps. By the way, in a few hundred years, Constantine's mother would go take those steps away and bring them to Rome as the birthday present for Constantine. They're still there. called the Scala Santa. Catholics climb on their knees even today to try to get blessing. He was standing at the top. Look at this. They went up. They start climbing the steps. This is, they're charging the stage. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he was accustomed to do for them. They demanded, you said you would give us a prisoner. Pilate answered them and said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? I think he was hoping they would say, sure. And then we have a little footnote in verse 10. Mark tells us that Pilate was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. As Pilate puts this question to the crowd, it would make any reversal impossible. He'll have a conversation with Jesus later behind closed doors. This was in public. Whatever he said and pontificated was irreversible. But his comment about the leaders indicates that he was a wise and discerning leader. He sees through these Jewish leaders, they are envious of Jesus, and Pilate knows it. They handed him over because of envy. They didn't like the threat that Jesus was to their leadership, to their position. They didn't have his power. They didn't have his authority. They didn't have his wit. They didn't have his cleverness. They didn't have his argumentation. They didn't have his love. They didn't have his instruction and his teaching, and they were envious. So they wanted to get rid of him. They were no competition for Jesus, and they knew it. So they could either bow the knee to the true king of the Jews or kill him. Get him out of the way so they could go back to their prominence. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them. This is so, so telling. 
The crowd moves from possibly being fickle. This verse indicates that they are now talked into everybody being whipped up into a frenzy against Jesus by the high priests. Chief priests, rather. They were whispering and spreading rumors and these chief priests were agging everybody on to come against Jesus. Perhaps even bribing them. They realize this has now become a court of public opinion and they leverage it for their case against Jesus, agging the crowd on. Jesus, the King, King Jesus, is now superseded by murderous Barabbas. third degenerating evaluation comes in verses 12 to 15. The king rejected by the crowd. The king rejected by the crowd. The chief priests have done their damage. The crowd is now whipped into a frenzy. They want to see blood. They want to see it today. They're they're excited to see a, a crucifixion. They were excited, as we'll see when they get to the cross, that he may perform a miracle and come down. This was all a show for them. Answering again, verse 12, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? If you're going to take Barabbas, what do I do with Jesus? Pilate's stuck. If he lets Barabbas go, now he has a prisoner. A very powerful one. So he asked the crowd what he should do with them, and their answer is chilling. Verse 13. They shouted back, Crucify him! This was the suggestion being passed around the crowd by the chief priest, voiced by the crowds. Now think for a minute, think for a minute of this moment. The song that Michaela sang earlier alludes to this. Paul explained to the Colossians, that it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was the agent of creation, the creator of every person. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the what you can see of what cannot be seen, the firstborn of all the creation, the greatest of all that's ever been born, for by him all things were created. Think about that. By Jesus, everything was created. He was the creator God. In heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And now, Jesus, God in human flesh, hears the people that he made in their mother's wombs scream for his death. I was thinking about this this week. I have three sons whom I love dearly. And I thought, how horrific would it be for any of them to join a crowd and scream for my death? That would be one of my sons whom I didn't even create. Imagine the creator God hearing, hearing, hearing his creatures 
scream and shout that he died. Still, in the midst of that, Hebrews 12, 2, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he loved us. He endures all of this because he loves us. Verse 14, Pilate declares his innocence. Pilate said to them, why crucify him? You want him to be executed, death penalty? Why? What evil has he done? They don't answer. They just turn up the volume. They shouted all the more, crucify him. By the way, three times in this passage, Pilate lobbies for Jesus Innocence and release. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 14. And three times he shouted down. When you put all four Gospels together, Pilate, Pilate rises to the surface as a very complicated and confused man. I, I frankly was reading all the parallel accounts of this this week. And I, I got to tell you, I, there's a sense in which I have a lot of pity for Pilate. He He was stuck by the powers above him and the mob below him. Mark doesn't mention it, but at one point, Pilate defers Jesus over to Herod, thinking he can get out of this. Herod can't find anything wrong with him, so he bounces him back over to Pilate. And Matthew gives us an interesting account that the night before this night, Pilate's wife had a dream. And she comes to her husband and says, have nothing to do with this man. She warns him because of her dream that he is innocent. Not to be a part of his condemnation. Still, still, verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. How many sins have been committed by peer pressure? Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, for them. And so understated, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging was a brutal and merciless preparation for crucifixion. The New Testament, by the way, shows no inclination to sensationalize the physical suffering of Jesus. This is very understated. He was scourged. Josephus tells us that before, and the Roman historian Josephus, who's a Jew, tells us that before a crucifixion, the condemned man was stripped naked, tied to a post, and beaten with a leather whip. At the end of this leather whip were woven bits of bone and metal and sharp stone that would grab the flesh and rip it. It was almost like giant fish hooks that would land in the flesh and pull pieces off. A scourging tore and lacerated the flesh on the back It would wrap around the arms that were tied to the 
to the post. It would wrap around the sides and rip pieces from the, from the chest. And again, Josephus tells us that it was so brutal that it often exposed bones and entrails. It would pull so much flesh off. The idea was to weaken the man to such extent that he couldn't last long on the cross. Women were not allowed to watch a scourging. It's considered too barbaric for them. Children were were disallowed from watching it as well because of its brutality. But this brutality of scourging was no accident. It was prophesied days and 850 years before this moment. Mark chapter 10, on their walk up to Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, they will mock Jesus, they will mock him and spit on him, the Son of Man, and will scourge him. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his, you know it well, what? Scourging. We get healing. Matthew and John and Luke give, frankly, more graphic details about Jesus' mistreatment. Mark just says he was scourged. Pilate thought that scourging him would might possibly be enough. Maybe they wouldn't call for his crucifixion after they saw what bad shape he was in, how cruel it had been. But the scribes and the chief priests in Luke chapter 23, 16 continued to cry for his death even after the scourging. So finally, in resignation, John 19, 6, Pilate says, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He washes his hands to say, this is not on me, it's on you. Again, the Jews couldn't carry out the crucifixion. They didn't have the power. They were under Roman rule who alone had the power of capital punishment. So they insisted that Rome carry out the execution which Pilate does. At this point, John tells us that Pilate, he's overridden with trouble and guilt, and he calls for a private session with Jesus. He comes back behind closed doors and says to him, where are you from? Jesus answered. He gave him no answer. Pilate said, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. I can get you off if you'll give me a good reason, is what he was saying. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. Jesus in the garden had every opportunity to run. Jesus here has every opportunity being divine and wise to argue his way out of this. He stays the course. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. Which brings us to the final humiliation 
in these four degenerating evaluations of the king of kings, the king scorned by the soldiers. Scorned by the soldiers. Verse 16. Soldiers, soldiers took him away into the palace. He goes back into the palace where he had been with Pilate, comes back out, the pronouncement's made. They take him back into the palace, that is the praetorium, this, this open, uh, very large opening. And they called together, look at this, the whole Roman cohort. That would have been about 600 troops. Jesus is bloodied. His face is mangled. His eyes, no doubt, swollen shut. His lips bleeding. His nose pouring forth blood. His back ripped to shreds. His chest dripping with flesh. His arms lacerated. Verse 17, so they... They had a play. They created a play in which Jesus was the only actor. They dressed him up in purple, the color of a king. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on him. These were four-inch, a bush that grew four-inch thorns. They wove it into a crown. They put it on him. And they began to acclaim. This is an interesting phrase. Hail, King of the Jews. That was a mockery and an offshoot of Hail, Caesar, King of Rome. Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. And they kept beating his head with a reed. Spitting on him. And kneeling and bowing before him. He has thorns on his head and they're smacking him in the thorns. And after they'd mocked him, Luke tells us they ripped the coat off. The blood had dried on this robe. And they rip it off and put his clothes back on him, which means that he suffered the indignity of nakedness. They put his own garments back on him, these bloody, tattered, ripped clothes. They are literally adding insult to injury. Mark strategically is showing us, phrase by phrase, that the prophecy in chapter 10, verse 34, was fulfilled where Jesus said, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he'll rise. James Brooks writes, Jesus was mocked as a pretender. But he was, in fact, a real king. The mocking was his enthronement. The cross, his throne. Mark wanted to emphasize that Jesus' kingship was characterized by humility and servanthood and was different than all other kingships of the world. The Savior is punched, slapped, 
and beaten and whipped and spat upon. His scourging was when he was humiliated and stripped, and then he suffers the indignity of being mocked just before he's executed. And then verse 20 at the end. And they led him out to crucify him. They led him out to crucify him. Typically, a Roman execution force was made up of four soldiers overseen by a centurion. We're going to learn something about that centurion. The squad now escorts Jesus the couple hundred yards over to Golgotha, the rock shaped like a skull. He's bloody, he's beaten, he's shredded, he's humiliated. His face is swollen beyond recognition. Jesus shows himself then to be Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah 56, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. One of the things that so surprises me in this narrative is how little emphasis or how little accent is put on the physical dimensions of Jesus' torture. Oh, we're drawn to it. We try to identify. We can't. We feel those blows. We see the humiliation. It, it makes us sick. We're all tempted to feel compassion on him for his physical suffering. However, when you stitch together the four gospel accounts and the rest of the New Testament, there is a noticeable absence of any kind of focus on his physical abuses and suffering. Instead, the accent falls on the derision and mockery of Jesus as the king and what his death meant as the propitiation, the substitute, the appeasement for the sin of those who believe. The rest of the New Testament will major on what Jesus' suffering and death means. As horrific as it was, these details aren't given to make us feel sorry for him. They're given to make us feel thankful him the timeless wonder of this passage is providentially extremely significant as our world spins out of control a high speed wobble with a looming election it's easy for us as believers to listen to everyone except Mark listen Remember that Jesus is the king of kings, the king of the Jews. And the king was mistreated and the king was killed. But he will rise from the dead. He reigns now in heaven and he will one day reclaim this earth as we read with his robe dipped in blood and be the king on the planet. Don't make any mistake. God has never suffered a political defeat. And this is not one either. He lays aside his royal privilege so he can.
can die for us. Four days earlier, this same crowd laid palm branches in the road and said, Hosanna, you're the king. The king is entering Jerusalem. And now they're calling for his execution. Why? Because they wanted a king who would give them what they wanted. Jesus, however, was intent on being the savior king who would provide for them what they needed. And he still offers that for anyone today. He suffered, and by the way, we haven't gotten to the worst part yet. This is just a prelude. This was just to soften him up so he would die fast. And still he would hang for six hours. Why? Why? Because of love, that's why. Because of love. While we were enemies, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. God demonstrating his own love. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's why. That's why he does this. Without this death, we would have to suffer a similar rejection by God, rejection by man, to suffer in hell forever. But in love, in love, he says, I will do this instead of you. You can use my death as your punishment. What what kind of fool would say no to that? What kind of fool would say no to forgiveness? What kind of fool would say yes to hell forever? What kind of fool would not believe the good news of the gospel based on the reality of his choosing to fulfill the predetermined plan of God and suffer a heinous death out of love? Don't be foolish. If you know Christ, what a, what a reason to worship this afternoon. If you've never committed your life to the Lord Jesus, how can you say no to this kind of love? I just beg you, consider the one who loved you this much to offer himself in this way for your own wickedness and sins to be punished for you instead of you by God in this suffering and punishment and ultimately death. If you, uh, if you want to talk about that today and you don't know Christ, I'll stay as long as you want. The friends around you even better would love to talk to you about this. I would beg you, don't leave, don't leave today with an unsettled soul that hasn't received the love of God in the death of Christ.